I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Michael and Tim, Sam, and JJ coming to you Theology Unplugged. Hello, hello, hello. Hey. Hey. Good Good morning, Tim. Good morning to you. Uh, This is uh, broadcast ministry for those of you who have never listened to us before. Maybe this is your first time listening. This is the broadcast ministry of, uh, what is our Reclaiming the Mind? Credo House Ministries. Yeah, Credo House Ministries. <laughs> Where am I? Who am I? We're in the middle of a name change, so <laughs> I never know which one it is. Credo House Ministries. So welcome. Glad that you've joined us. Uh, if you're joining us through iTunes or on the web, be sure to check out some of our previous broadcasts. We're right in the middle of a series right now. We're a, probably just should about, you say a landmark series? A landmark series. I mean, the defining <laughs> series of all series. Um, if you have never listened to us before, check out the other broadcast we've been doing you can go back over the last five years and see all kinds of things that are um, available for you in unplugged manner unplugged what does unplugged mean tim well unplugged generally means it hasn't been completely true for this series but generally it means that we really don't know what we're going to talk about but be four guys now that get together and uh, having lives where we're seeking the lord uh, wanting to uh, we believe but wanting to now that we believe understand more and more and so where we get together and we talk about theological things and in getting together we have we're four guys who love each other love christ with all of our hearts and our desire is to have Theological edu- or theologically uh, driven conversations with the idea that maybe you don't have that in your context where you live. Maybe you don't have friends that you s- feel like you can really sit down and talk about very deep things as it relates to the Lord. But here, uh, you can kind of join our conversation. You can c- comment. You can send us emails and really be a part of having meaningful conversations. JJ's with us again. JJ side. Yeah. Why is he here? He is here because you know what I don't know. He, he's he likes the coffee. I think generally speaking, and he's a he's a, a pastor here. He serves with Sam, and uh, generally just uh, well read, loves Christ. Uh, um, I think probably reads just as much as anybody else does, and I think has a lot to contribute to our conversations if we ever let him talk. And, and I'm, no, I'm a crazy charismatic. Let's not that's, that's really why I'm here. And you're, Tim's probably a little bit OCD, so he just wanted some symmetry in the room. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And we thought, yeah. We thought to ourselves, who's a straw man that we can bring in? And JJ was the first one that came to mind. Sam, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good. I'm doing well. Trying to wake up. All right. Well, you got your coffee there. What is that, Tim? What kind of coffee did you make him? Uh, we made him Vaquero, uh, which is a Chemex brewing method of elemental uh coffee and it is sitting on top of i believe the book of john all i ask is folgers and a mr coffee and i get this scientifically <laughs> exactly. precise uh, because there is dignity dignity beyond folgers I and so we're so. we're we are seeking uh, a greater whatever. dignity and a greater uh, uh coffee brewing method all right well speaking of dignity yes. we need to uh, continue the series the series is uh, why i'm not charismatic why I am not, why I am slash not charismatic. That's right. Tim and I will be playing the good guys, <laughs> Sam, JJ, bad guys over there, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to continue our discussion here today on why I am slash not charismatic, discussing the charismatic issue 
Um, and, and I think it seems to be, you guys, that this is kind of brewing up a little bit over the web, right? I mean, you, you cross across the web and you got some things going on, right? Uh, we've stirred up something uh, <laughs> or restirred it. But yeah, it seems as if uh, most of the blogs or many of the blogs and a lot of the discussion um, is focusing on this. I don't know if we're the ones that provoked it or uh, awakened a sleeping giant. But, yeah, it seems to be on everybody's mind. Well, hopefully we're providing a different type of conversation about this. You know, yeah. there's, there's usually the typical conversations that go on about these type of things. And that's one of the things that we hope to be different in is that this is a conversation where we're trying to understand the issues and we're trying to rightly place them in the spectrum of an you know relative importance as well that's why you and i can sit across here jj and you don't have to have uh, any protective uh, facial stuff that i'm not going to come over there and slug you you're just kicking me under the table (laughs) but uh, as far as the controversy in the blogosphere i'm sure mark driscoll's comments in one of his recent sermons probably didn't help but, was, uh, was that I, a recent sermon? I, I think it was. It must have been a couple of years old. It, it looked as if it was to me. So just from because I watched the blog hmm. or the what the video yeah. it was on a blog. It's, well, it's we don't watch that, the blog, do you? It's interesting <laughs> that I don't think Sam and I would use those words. I don't think we mind being provocative, but there's a sense in which uh, I have no interest in accusing a cessationist of being a deist or a naturalist or an anti-supernaturalist or any of those things. I think we in this room understand that that's, that issue is really off the table, isn't really a part of this discussion. Yeah. Well, well you're talking about a different uh, Driscoll video from the one I had in mind. You're talking about his message in Orlando at the uh, Acts 29 boot camp that what took place earlier this year. So that was only about six months ago. I was thinking of the one that um, provoked a lot of people in which he was discussing the gift of uh, discerning of spirits or of prophecy, and uh, he uh, used some fairly graphic uh, portrayals of what he believed the Lord showed him in counseling sessions. So those are two different videos, but they both kind of hit the blogosphere and uh, YouTube at the same time. Yeah, so needless to say, Driscoll's out there on for numerous things that people are. Mark is always out there. He is. Always, he is. He can't stay stay away, even if he tries. Uh, JJ, do you want to fill us in just kind of quickly on uh, what the controversy is out there with Driscoll? Well, I, I'm not authoritative, but I know from the the few things I've read, it, it seems as though you know Driscoll was kind of pushing hard to say, look, if if you're not a continuationist then there's going to be implications from your belief system of rejecting continuationism that in a sense you know allows me to to warn you of slipping towards deism or naturalism or or yeah. not seeking god for healing or not praying the same way that i pray um, and and I don't know that that's a position that either Sam or I would take. I think mm-hmm. all of us, when we recognize our little heresies and, and we seek to have them corrected or there's a position that we're in transition on, oftentimes we just discover that we've been a little bit inconsistent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, we found we found many Arminians, for example, that have a very high view of God's sovereignty. Now, you know, a Calvinist might say to him that the fact that you have a high view of God's sovereignty is, is maybe serendipitous <laughs> and mm-hmm. inconsistent with actually your theological framework. So it's not going to be helpful in seeking to uh, demonstrate Calvinism from the text to that Arminian to accuse him of having a low view of God's sovereignty. That's not really going to help the conversation get off the ground because, in fact, he may be wrong. He may have a very high view of God's sovereignty. Calvinists believe in serendipity? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and one thing, too, I think people uh, are seeing maybe the weightiness of of Driscoll's thoughts and and words because of the movement and the the church planting network that he's leading. A lot of people don't know about this, but uh, the Acts 29 network is a church planting network, which Bridgeway 
is a part of and uh, currently has 500 churches, I believe, that are a part of that network. And uh, and I think the potential is for a couple thousand more over the next few years, possibly, uh, to be a part of this church planning network, very popular network. Um, and so... So, and within that network, if you get me, if uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you can be a, a charismatic church in that network, and that's totally cool. Um, and so, there are several distinctives that you have to adhere to, or some distinctives you have to say in order to be an Acts 29 church, you have to adhere to some of this list. And in that list is you can be a charismatic church, but you don't have to. Is that correct? Yeah, there are, there are cessationists. Yeah. in the Acts 29 network. Yeah, um, one of our four foundational values is what Mark calls uh, spirit-empowered living. And it's not really focused on the issue of spiritual gifts. It's focused on uh, pursuing life and ministry modeled after Jesus, who was constantly and uh, consistently dependent upon the Spirit. We're told that he was filled with the Spirit, he was led by the Spirit, um, and that he performed all of his works, his teachings, his miracles through the power of the Spirit. Yeah. And so that's the model or the paradigm that we want to implement in our own lives. And that's the so I, I would say that the, um, cessationists are very much in the minority in Acts twenty nine, but there are there are a number mm-hmm. present, and they I, they're welcomed, and I think they feel affirmed and comfortable. And um, whether or not that changes over time remains to be seen. By the way, yeah. just a slight correction: we have about four hundred full member churches. Okay, we have about five hundred who are in the application process. Yeah, okay. uh, probably only about a quarter of whom will make it through. Okay, okay. But just to be technically correct, but it is on a, it seems to be on a trajectory of significant growth. Yeah, perhaps. I think probably within the next uh, two years we'll be a, a thousand full member churches. Would okay, be, I guess. okay. And just to give a plug, as Sam was talking about this idea of walking as Jesus walked, and, and that what that means is really this spirit led, spirit empowered life. Um, I do only what I see my Father doing, and so forth. Um, Gerald Hawthorne's The Presence and the Power is still, I think, probably the seminal book on that. And there haven't been enough books written on this, it seems to me. Bruce Ware gave an incredible address on it in his presidential address at ETS in, I think, two years ago, was it? So whenever you see it pop up, it's really an encouraging thing, and I think it helps believers to see, oh, it's not disingenuous to say, walk as Jesus walked, because he did it in dependence on his Father by yeah. the power of the Spirit. We need more guys writing about that. But pick yeah. up that. I encourage people to pick up that book and read it. You know what's interesting is that's kind of a hobby horse of Michael's, is that uh, discussion, but that's probably for another time. Yeah, and I had to convince you of it, didn't I? You did, but you did. You thoroughly convinced no, me of it. No, you only got convinced once you heard Driscoll talk about it. Yeah. Well, Thanks once again, I, yeah. he came back. He came back from that. No. So I'm now convinced of your view. <laughs> Honestly, if if people don't have time to read a lot, uh, I would strongly encourage them to go to the Gospel Coalition website, yeah. yeah, or blog or whatever it is, and listen to Mark's message that he delivered at the Gospel Coalition conference back in April. It was the best one hour presentation of that perspective that I've heard. Mm-hmm. So strongly encourage them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and if you aren't familiar with the Gospel Coalition, please go there. It's a great resource. It's just thegospelcoalition.org. Well, we're, again, trying to provide a different type of voice with regards to a lot of these issues. Now, the the thing that's interesting to me is that this is kind of fired up among the web, around the web right now, and it seems like there's a lot of volleying back and forth going, uh, not to mention any names, but some 
from some people that are uh, trying to take up the the polemical, I think, uh, banner on this issue once again. Yeah, it's getting a little heated. For yeah, it sure. is. Yeah. It is, and it, it seems to be you know the dividing line is drawn pretty deeply whenever you bring up uh, these types of issues, and you're only trying to talk about it in extreme and trying to talk about it in ways that uh, that vilify really one side or the other. And so that's what we're trying not to do here, right? That's right. We're not into vilification. All right. Well, we're going to talk about prophecy here today, and I think that this is whatever we've gone through a lot of different things, and now we want to zero in on some specific gifts because I know that we've defined the charismatic movement, we've defined what it means uh, or what the gifts are, and we've talked about it here. But when we talk about the individual gifts, I think it's very important for us to discuss them so that we know where the dividing line is because sometimes you find that you're talking past each other in a lot of these issues and. And the um, uh, and the controversy is not quite so controversial. You agree? Yes. Yes. So when we talk about this, I, and I really see it as these three main gifts: uh, prophecy, healings, or gifts of healing, and um, tongues. tongues. I mean, obviously, tongues. Uh, other than that, I think that what we, we ought to throw in word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and we'll talk about that some today. But it seems like if we deal with this, these three gifts, it's uh, pretty much dealt with all the controversial ones. It's a great choice because uh, Paul spends a lot of time talking about <laughs> them, and so we've got some great texts that uh, where, where the New Testament's pretty clear on their function, and that helps the discussion. But also, they're, they're touchpoint gifts in the sense that they've all been badly abused. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. you know, we can talk about them from both perspectives in the sense of they're, they're an emotional flashpoint for people, but the text also has a lot to say about them. Well, it seems to be prophecy would be one of the most controversials for a whole different reason, and I guess we'll talk about that here today and maybe next time. But when we're talking about prophecy, we're talking about one of the gifts that uh, um, uh, Paul talks about as a gift of the Spirit, talks about prophecy and uh, the giving of prophets, right? Two, two different things are we talking about, or is that the same thing? Uh, well, they're different, but they're definitely related. Uh, this is one of the issues we'll probably discuss. I think uh, the potential exists for anyone to prophesy, but that doesn't mean that uh, everyone who does is a prophet. I think uh, um, that, there, that Paul recognizes a distinction between those who on occasion may by God's sovereign moving prophesy as over against someone who displays over time a consistency and a facility and an accuracy in the exercise of that gifting. So, But again, we probably take that up at a later time. Let's talk about exactly what prophecy is then. Okay, Prophecy, a lot of people are listening to this and they think prophecy and they think just predicting the future. Now, if you're a prophet, you look ahead in the future, you predict the future. And the uh, Bible's got a lot of prophets, and maybe Nostradamus uh, would be, come to mind with people as a prophet. But that's, that's not really what we want to narrow it down to, right? Because prophecy does speak about predicting the future sometimes. But when we talk about a prophet of God in the biblical sense, we're talking about someone who speaks on behalf of God. Is that right? JJ um, <laughs> shaking his head. No, it's all it like a yes. no and a yes. <laughs> well, yeah. again, for putting it in that uh, language, someone who speaks on behalf of God immediately casts the discussion in a certain light that I'm not real comfortable with because it uh, connotes uh, a notion of infallibility and um, 
in, in inescapably authoritative and um, scripture quality um, um, accuracy of what is said. So, um, and consequently, it, a threat it, to the canon. Yeah, and, and yeah. It, it, it comes with uh, those who would preface their prophecies with "Thus saith the Lord." And so, I think we, would, I would, I would personally would want to avoid casting it in in that light. So perhaps we could say something that yes has been revealed by God, but is not someone that is speaking God's words. Right. Uh, now, again, as Michael said, there is occasionally a predictive element. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at uh, Acts 11, uh, verses 27 and 28, where he says, where Luke tells us that prophets uh, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that would, there would be a great famine over all the world. And in fact, that is precisely what took place. So there was a predictive element. But that is very much the exception in the New Testament. Uh, this kind of prophetic uh, foretelling is the, is rare. Uh, far more common is what we would call the foretelling dimension of prophecy, in which, again, to steal Wayne Grudem's language, uh, he, he demystifies it and says it's simply speaking forth in human words what God has spontaneously brought to mind. Mm-hmm. So that is a much simpler and, I think, less threatening way of describing what the New Testament gift is. It is when God, uh, by means of some revelatory instrument, whether an impression, a dream, a vision, uh, an image that is made known to an individual who then in turn speaks that forth in his own words, in his own um, uh, choice of timing. So uh, that's how I would understand the prophetic gift. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.3 that it's designed to encourage, to exhort, to console the body of Christ, uh, to build up. Actually, one of the words used there is to edify. So um, obviously Paul envisions it as something that is highly beneficial to the church, and that's why he says uh, that he wishes that all would prophesy because it uh, speaks to the body for edification. And, and if it feels as though, you know, we're spending too much time defining terms, unfortunately, in this case, specifically with this gift, defining terms is almost the debate. Yeah. <laughs> when someone like Robert yeah. Sosi is established, the theologian as Robert Sosi is going to say, um, you know, uh, I'm arguing that there's a good chance that this gift has ceased. Um, but as to the, the question of why there's not a lot of fanfare or direct declaration of its ceasing in the New Testament, that's not really a concern because Malachi, you know, was the last prophet to speak authoritatively before this intertestamental period, and that happened without a lot of fanfare. People just sort of figured it out. So by correspondence, you know, the same thing has probably happened after the closing of the canon. But again, it's so interesting because we wouldn't even see those as, as being correlative. You know, it's, an Old Testament prophet is not parallel with the New Testament gift of prophecy being exercised where it's still required that it be weighed and people exercise discernment. Um, you know, Malachi's role in speaking and scripturated truth was, was dramatically different than the New Testament gift of prophecy functioning for encouragement and upbuilding and being subject to people's discernment. Well, and Grudem speaks of foundational or non-foundational. Do you like that that thinking of foundational prophets being the prophets of uh, of the Old Testament, not just prophets of the Old Testament, because like an example given is like Nathan was a prophet of the Old Testament, but he didn't do anything that was scripture. You know, I mean, you could say, well, when he spoke to David, that was written down in scripture, but he's not like a prophet like Isaiah who is writing the very words of God. Where then you have all of these non-foundational prophets who are prophets, but they're not laying the scripture 
scriptural foundation of the church. Yeah, that's a very important distinction to draw. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> excuse me, um, there are some hard cessationists, such as uh, Richard Gaffin, who contributed to the Four Views book that have we ever mentioned that before, by the way, Michael? We are right the, now. Uh, Our Miraculous Gifts for Today, Four Views, uh, published by Zondervan. Yeah, that's one of the counterpoint views, and uh, it's got it's got some really good authors, except for this one, Sam Storms. I mean, he, he represents his... I felt like they could have gotten a better representation. They here. definitely could have gotten a better <laughs> representation. No, uh, Our Miraculous Gift for Today, Four Views, a great book. You guys are really interested in this and want to pick up something. Besides the blogs that are going back and forth with me and Sam, that is a great book to get. Uh, do you feel like the other views were represented well in that? Yes, I do. Um, they, uh, uh, It's the best-selling of the count- in the CounterPoint series. Mm. It's in its, like, its sixth or seventh printing, so mm. it's doing very well. But Dick Gaffin um, would argues in that book and in our discussions together that all prophecy – was foundational. So when we read, for example, in Ephesians 2.20 about the church being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he would say that was inclusive of all prophetic activity, which I challenged him on. I said, I find that very difficult to believe. Um, Are you you suggesting then that uh, all of the uh, young women and old men who prophesied on the day of Pentecost, as Peter says they did in Acts chapter 2, or um, the unnamed uh, disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19 who prophesied um, after their uh, water baptism or um, all of the uh, prophets, for example, in Antioch mentioned in Acts 13 or those in 1 Corinthians 14 and all the other churches that all of these people were contributing to the foundation of the universal church, all speaking scripture quality words for some reason, none of which have been preserved for us. Yeah. So um, I challenged um, him on that point, and I said, it seems to me we need to differentiate between, now Wayne might call it foundational and non-foundational. Others, uh, including myself, would call it uh, canonical prophecy versus congregational prophecy. Okay. There were certainly prophets who most likely were also apostles who operated um, in such a way that their prophetic utterances were um, oftentimes the very letters and the epistles and the writings of the New Testament, but who contributed to laying the, the once-for-all foundation of the universal body of Christ, the theological truths, the ethical principles that are infallible, inerrant, unchanging, and altogether sufficient. But that doesn't exhaust, in my opinion, the prophetic gift in the New Testament. I think there are uh, numerous examples, several of which I just mentioned, in which people from every walk of life, young, old, male, female, average folk in the church at Corinth or Galatia or Thessalonica who prophesied in a congregational context whose prophecies were to be sifted and weighed and assessed um, and these are not what we would call foundational in nature. They were designed for the building, the edification, the encouragement of the church in the same way the teaching gift. You teach, you, you show mercy, you encourage all these spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up and edifying the body of Christ. So I would call it canonical versus congregational. You can call it foundational versus non-foundational. Mm-hmm. Just depends on which you prefer. Okay, before we move on beyond that, obviously that is going to be the point of uh, controversy and the point of departure between charismatics and non-charismatics normally. Now, I don't get this, and you guys are going to have to explain this to me, because 
here's where I'm coming at it from. Prophecy is being God's word, right? I mean, uh, it is uh, in the Old Testament, when we're taking it from the Old Testament, we have prophet, the prophet speaking on behalf of God, being the voice of God. Is that right? Would you guys agree, yes. at least in the Old Testament, yes. that's the way it was? Yeah, God was very clear. I'm going to tell you something to say, and you better say it. And if you don't, you're you know rebelling against me. And, yeah. uh, so it was a serious deal when Jeremiah gets called and anointed, and he's, mm-hmm. the Lord's saying, I don't care how young you are, you need to tell him whatever I tell you. And it's authoritative. Okay, so if prophecy in the Old Testament, let's 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 expand on that, and please allow me just for a moment to expand on it because it represents the seriousness of what it is when we talk about prophecy. God is very jealous of His word. I mean, He's very jealous of His reputation. Whenever He talks about uh, establishing Himself among the nation of Israel, He wants to establish Himself as one who is accurately represented. And now, I mean, uh, in the nations of the day, you know, you had guys going around all over the place uh, speaking on behalf of their gods in the name of Baal, in the name of uh, Marduk, in the name of uh, whomever their gods may be. They would speak to kings, and they would speak to rulers, and they'd speak to nations. And they may go to their nation and say, in the name of Baal, O king, you know, you shall win this war. And then Marduk's prophet comes up and says, no, in the name of Marduk, you know, you're not going to. You shall not go out against this nation, that type of stuff. And so we would speak in the name of someone. You would speak in the name of uh, their reputation and in their authority. And so when we're talking about a prophet being established in the Old Testament, you have uh, this this kind of formal office that was semi-represented by the judges because the judges acted with the authority of God. But you have the prophet that came in and spoke on behalf of God to the people. God set up certain rules, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 13 basically says that the prophet, if he speaks on behalf of me and there's a sign or a wonder that he does and it comes to pass, that um, you're not necessarily supposed to listen to him because he may say, go follow after other gods. And in going following after other gods, it's obviously speaking wrongly about God. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says if somebody's going to speak on my behalf, they have to show some type of a testing sign that they're speaking on my behalf. Correct? And that's reasonable. Now, listen, listen to it from my standpoint, sitting here today and trying to represent as well as I can those who are at least not charismatic, not necessarily the cessationist. Somebody comes in here and says, Michael, I've got a word from the Lord for you. Uh, even if they come in and say, you know, um, I mean, not so much thus saith the Lord. It's just here's what the Lord told me to tell you or something like that. Um, my first thought is, you know, how in the world would I know that you're speaking on behalf of the Lord? I mean, I'd love to have a word from the Lord. I really would. Love to have somebody come in and have something really specific towards my life. And I don't believe it it would have to be written down or put in the Bible. We'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later. But I'd love to have something from the Lord. But the thing is, whenever somebody comes and claims to speak on behalf of the Lord, I'm going to say, listen, I mean, that's my Lord you're talking about. This is my God, and I, I can't just accept anything anybody says because anybody can say that if the criteria is just simply saying, I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord. So it's reasonable in the Old Testament for God to have set up such parameters, kind of boundaries. Um, I, I think that that is really representative of what the third commandment is. One of the third commandment says, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. I think that that has to do with uh, this uh, uh, prophetic element. You shall not take my name like the other gods 
profits are taking their name. It's just worthless. It's it's uh, you know speaking on my behalf without even having any authority to speak on my behalf. Now, having set all that up, here's what I get from the Old Testament. And I know you guys are going to be with me here. I'm just trying to figure out how we make this transition. God is very, very protective of his, revel- uh, of his reputation. Um, he doesn't want to be misrepresented. It's very easy to misrepresent God. We've got it all over the place. You know, you guys would agree. We've got false teachers and false prophets and all kinds of people setting up things, speaking on behalf of our God. And so he's very protective of himself. Agree? Yes. Okay. Now, what I don't get, guys, you're going to have to help me out here. I don't get how in the New Testament suddenly it's not quite so protective. And I don't get how we can change the name and still use the word prophet or prophecy and it have different criteria to where, and and just hang with me because this is what I'm hearing, it doesn't matter quite so much in the New Testament. It doesn't matter as much as it did in the Old. Now, I'm not for, say... You know, if you get a prophecy wrong or you come in and you speak on behalf of the Lord that you need to be set up on the death penalty, right? I mean, that's not what I'm saying. I'm which, just saying. Which some people do say that. Some hard cessationists will say if you're wrong once, you should be killed. Yeah, I mean, that's that's just, I think that's rhetoric uh, because yeah. they know that we're not under the law. But Well, what, and that's, again, only if there's this presuppositional corollary between yeah. what that word means and how that role functions in the Old Testament. Okay, two questions for you guys, and I don't know how much time we're going to be able to get to. Maybe it's the next session we get to this. Two <laughs> questions for you guys. Number one, when did this transition take place? Is this something that's common or is it something with um, the charismatic movement or the, the the Pentecost third wave charismatic type deal? Is that something that's you know comes along with that? Is it something that Grudem brought in, this kind of different type of prophecy that uh, the New Testament has different criteria? When did it come into being and how do we justify that? Because... Unless you can justify that to me, that's a very hard transition for me to make because essentially you're saying to me, Michael, God cared a whole lot about his word in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, not quite so much so. Sure, I'd be happy to. I think the first answer to the when is it happened on the day of Pentecost. It didn't happen in 1960 or 1970. <laughs> I think the change came uh, at Pentecost with the, with the formation of the church where Peter basically democratized the prophetic gift. Uh, we agree that uh, prophecy was, uh, that, that there were obviously um, very visible and designated individuals who were very few and far between in the Old Testament in who, whose mouth the Lord put his word. And he did have very strict guidelines, you're right, uh, and very serious consequences for the abuse of that and claiming to speak for God when in, indeed you did not. But what I see happening in the New Testament is Peter says the spirit who operated in a very small and narrow range in the Old Testament now into the New Covenant has been democratized. All have the spirit. Therefore, all have the potential to prophesy. Now, back up for a moment because I don't sure. know if everybody's understanding the term democratized. Tell it's, me. It, it's distributed to everybody in, uh, among God's people. In the Old Covenant, uh, there were... All just the average Israelite would not be a typical candidate to prophesy. Okay. In the New Covenant, every believer has the potential to prophesy. In fact, Peter seems to be saying in Acts 2 that this is a distinctive characteristic of New Covenant Christianity, namely this outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh so that young men, old men, older women, young maids shall dream dreams, have visions, and prophesy. So I think the transition occurred at, at that particular point. Okay. 
But we're going to pick that back up because that's very important trying to trying to figure out how it is that this is justified from a biblical standpoint. Real quickly, though, because my question didn't really mean, uh, I know I set myself up for that, but is this something that is kind of a new interpretation of the prophecy, how it's to be interpreted from the Old Testament to the New Testament? In other words, is this something that Grudem came up with more than anybody else? No, I don't think he came up with it. I think Wayne certainly uh, was one of uh, the first to go deeply into the text and articulate a a theology of the New Testament prophetic gift. But, um, you know, maybe this is something we'll have to talk about when we get into the discussion of of the prophetic in church history. Because we certainly have instances, um, especially in the post-Reformation era, among the Puritans, even among individuals who contributed to the Westminster Confession of Faith, of all things, who um, speak oftentimes of the operation of the prophetic gift. You know, I'm not talking about the operation of the prophetic gift. What I'm talking about is this distinction between the prophetic gift as it's in the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. you know, that you can't be wrong on it, and now in the New Testament that... It seems to be a different definition, although we haven't defined it yet. I know that. Hasn't that arisen in a backwards way of, of when when it becomes an argument for a cessationist to say what you've done is put the canon in danger by elevating this thing to a dangerous place of authority? Then people have just had to look closely at their Bibles and say, well, that's that's never how it's portrayed as functioning in the New Testament. And let's be really clear it, it about that. It could be. I, I'm just wondering, though. I'm not saying that it is. I mean, my, whenever you say that prophecy is distinct in the Old Testament from the New Testament, that's something that I just I, I never have seen myself, and you're going to have to explain that to me. But I'm just trying to figure out, is that something I've missed, but everybody else has seen, and it's something that's very clear that the type of prophet in the New Testament is different than the type of prophet in the Old Testament? I, I think it's very clear. In fact, in the, in the blog art series that you and I are conducting, my next installment, my next article, I give 10 reasons uh, why I believe the New Testament prophetic gift operates at a different level of authority from the Old Testament prophetic gift. And I talk about why, and I try to give examples from Paul, from the book of Acts, and elsewhere as to why this is the case. But, so but you said it's an after-the-fact thing for you. Now, you're saying it's clear. He says it's after-the-fact. I'm you saying guys probably greater awareness. I, I mean, we're going to we're gonna have to wait till next time for you guys to clarify all this. <laughs> Hey, honestly, is it okay if we if we stop, pause, go on to the next time? Sure. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.